Hello all, warmest welcomes to another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the number one North Wales spare room based one person true crime podcast that seeks to search out and bring to your ears some of the more unfamiliar, often forgotten dark tales from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It's fabulous as ever having all of you folks joining me here again today, as ever it means the world, and I hope that through these crazy times, every single one of you is doing well and good as the episode finds you. Now big thanks once again are going out this week to everyone who's contributed to the ongoing fundraiser that the show has, aiming to raise money for Macmillan Cancer Support. We're just past a quarter of the way through the total I'd love to raise for it now and I'm bowled over by your kind efforts guys because it is something that does touch us all sadly at some point in our lives with either ourselves or our loved ones. It's something that's very close to my heart and Macmillan supported several people who are dear to me so I had no hesitation in creating a fundraiser. I didn't have time to walk a hundred times around my garden seat. Off topic as well I know but what an absolute legend Captain Tom is, eh? Stories such as his are proper uplifting in times such as these, aren't they? Give him a knighthood unquestionably. We can't all be Captain Toms, but we do what we can for the worthwhile. So should anyone wish to donate to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Macmillan Cancer Support Fundraiser, then details of the fundraising page can be found in the show's Facebook discussion group, or there's a link to it in the episode show notes this week. The same, and this goes without saying, but to all key workers out there who are doing what they do so we can have at least some shadow of the norm in our lives, you're all inspirational and thank you so much. Those Thursday night claps and rainbows in the window, they're very much appreciated, aren't they? And without trying to sound like I'm describing Batman, they may not be the heroes we want, but they are the heroes that we need. This month's Patreon episode is coming next week. I've been somewhat busy tied up researching and writing the Maniac arc, so and it's working out to be a tale of epic proportion. But it is chosen, it's almost fully researched, and bonus episode 28 will be with you before the month is out. Thanks for going out to both returning supporters and new friends of the show, Kathleen Keeler, Cynthia Cooper, Nina Gale, Janine Clark, Kyle Robertson, Juliet Mead, Catherine Carey, Julie Cox, Helen Smith, Robert Schramm, Christine Phillips, Chris Lomas, Hayes Selby D and Ashley Ives. Apologies if I've pronounced anyone's names wrong there. Support's very much appreciated from you guys. If you're any more outstanding, then you'd be scarecrows. So thank you very much. I hope that you've enjoyed the unreleased bonus content and items that have gone out for a couple of you. And hey, if you have then why not now have a discuss and a compare with Patreon supporters of other UK shows, Seeing Red and UK True Crime on Facebook. I've joined up with the hosts of both, Adam and Bethan and Mark, because despite if you may think that there might be, there is no friendly rivalry at all. Us collective hosts all get on really well and we happily converse with one another often. So now we've got a Facebook group specifically for Patreoners of our shows to mingle about should you wish to. It'll be great to see you there. If you want access to the group or any of the bonus content to be found as a supporter of the show, then it costs less each month in shekels than the number of meters that you should be apart from someone in public right now. And doing it so easy, you don't even have to buy it a drink first. 
Just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there, or use the ever-present link that's in the episode show notes. And on that note, it's time to grab the bull by the bollocks and crack on with this series' multi-episode arc, Maniac. So, so far on the episode arc, we've learned of a savage and dangerous rapist that was stalking the pathways and commons of South London from the late 80s to the early 90s, and we've learned of the horrific and senseless death of mother and daughter Samantha and Jasmine Bissett, again in South London in November 1993. Now, if you haven't heard either of those episodes yet, then you're probably best off listening in there first for the context as I did say at the start of the first episode of Maniac, The Beast of the Green Chain, that we made time jump somewhat through the tale. I could have done it differently, I suppose, but it's the way that I've chosen to do it. And to tell the tale properly, it's working out as a bit of a saga. In fact, it's going to take up a quarter of this series of the show. But I can't do any episodes unless I can give them the absolute best, so there you go. For this episode then, we head back to 1992 to look at a crime that shocked the nation. It's arguably one of the highest profile cases I've covered in five series of The Enthusiast. And where I normally try to shy away from cases such as that, this one is an integral part of the overall tale and is told so that names such as Samantha and Jasmine can be equally remembered. It's a horrific, senseless crime, it really is, and one that the Metropolitan Police came in for a lot of flack for the undertaking of their unscrupulous, somewhat blinkered investigation of it, which went off a tragic tangent. I'm sure, as the episode on the one following it goes on, you'll see exactly what I mean. As ever on the show, the episode contains graphic details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or upsetting. Not to cause offence or to be deliberately sensationalist or macabre, but as ever, it's what we do here on The Enthusiast, isn't it? So please use your discretion whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as for the third episode in the Maniac arc, we go for a final walk on Wimbledon Common. Before the events that make up the tale I'm about to bring this episode then, If you'd mentioned Wimbledon to anybody, the first thing that pops into your mind is of course tennis, as it's this area of southwest London that the world-famous annual tennis tournament, and the world's oldest as well I found out, is held. Aside from that, the area is also famous for the 1100-plus acre Wimbledon Common, one of the largest expanses of open space in London, and a popular place with families, dog walkers, and outdoor enthusiasts. And if you live in the UK, then it may also be well known to you as the fictional home of the environmentally friendly, burrowing, Christ knows what creatures they are, the Wombles. Now this was always going to be part of the stats of the episode, and I remember watching and loving the Wombles when I was a kid, but I didn't realise they actually stemmed from a series of novels in the 1950s with the idea of author Elizabeth Beresford following a Boxing Day walk on Wimbledon Common with her children that her youngest daughter kept pronouncing wrongly as Wombledon. Now from this simple slip of the tongue grew the idea of the Wombles, giving way to Wellington, Tobermory, the great uncle Bulgaria, and their adventures underground, overground, making use of the rubbish that people left behind, that have entertained and grown beloved to children for more than 50 years now. 
I can't believe I so, so resisted singing the theme tune then, but I loved that fact. I thought it was great. Now, I'm not going to go on and on more about the bloody Wombles. Anyway, apart from saying that, have a look on YouTube. There's a ruck of episodes of them on there, and I defy you not to have the very simple theme tune stuck in your head once you've heard it. I did while I was writing the episode. I really did. I also had a giant Womble myself some years ago that I bought at a car boot sale for a few quid, and it led to an almighty row with a girl I was seeing at the time over why I'd bought it. I was like, well, it's a big Womble for three quid. You're not going to not buy it, are you? What's your bloody problem? I couldn't give him money fast enough. But alas, he went to the Chazza a while back too. So personally, for myself, I'm sure many others listening, that was once the first thing that you would associate Wimbledon Common with. Something gentle and beloved from childhood. But on a Wednesday morning in July 1992, the 15th, something was to happen that forever took some of that innocence from Wimbledon Common, leaving it with a dark infamy. That something was one of the most brutal, infamous murders in British criminal history, a crime that shocked and broke the nation's hearts. At 10.35 that sunny Wednesday morning, Architect Michael Murray was out walking his dog along one of the many trails that crisscrossed the common, a particular path that skirts the common's notable feature of a windmill and heads towards a wooded area nearby known as Windmill Wood. When interviewed years later, he takes up the story. My dog decided to go up a wooded path and at the top of the path I saw a pair of bare legs, so my first thought was that it must be somebody sunbathing. As we got closer, I could see that she was covered in blood, there was blood everywhere, and there was a little boy holding her arm. When I got up to where she'd laid, her eyes had no life in them at all. My first thought was for the child. Poor little chap was very distressed, I think he was in shock. He said, get up mummy, but she was of course dead by then. The scene Michael described here truly must have been the stuff of nightmares. Lying on the ground underneath a silver birch tree was the body of an attractive young blonde woman, heavily bloodstained and lying on her left side with her hips slightly raised, her arms and legs lying next to her face. Clearly dead, due to the amount of blood apparent at the scene, her jeans and underwear had also been tugged down and were reversed over her boots, adding a further indignity. Nearby, a small black Labrador greyhound cross dog whimpered, clearly terrified out of its wits now that's awful enough isn't it it really is and you'd never forget that until the day you died but imagine also seeing the sight of a bare-chested toddler a boy not even three years old covered in blood and mud clinging to her arm and desperately asking his mother to get up you just can't imagine it can you Gathering the blood-stained, mud-covered little boy into his arms, Michael ran onto the open ground to get help and to get him away from the horrific scene. Seeing a group of women and children nearby, he handed the boy to Emma Brooks and her friend Penny Horn and made a dash to the nearby park ranger station to get help. Meanwhile, John and Janet Marshall, a couple also on the common walking their dog, came across the body from the opposite direction and John also ran to get help passing a school teacher and a party of children who were headed in the same direction, briefly stopping to tell the supervising teacher strictly not to take the children down there. John continued and arrived at the ranger station almost the same time as Michael Murray did. 
Within 15 minutes, several uniformed police officers were at the scene, where two officers went and saw for themselves the horrific sight. Making their way to the body carefully, they checked for a pulse but found none, although it was noted that the young blonde woman's wrist was warm. She hadn't been like this for very long. Cordoning off the immediate area where the body lay, a further cordon was placed at either end of the path, and the common itself was effectively sealed off, although due to its size and the coordination of officers to access and egress points, this took some time. As this took shape, a search of the common and its various woods and waterways also got underway, supported with tracker dogs and aerial support from Indian 19, the Metropolitan Police Helicopter Unit. In fact, from the very off, the police investigation was massive. Within an hour of the body being discovered, a mobile incident room had been established on the common, and dozens of officers were out tracing the 500 or so people who'd been on the common that morning as potential witnesses. But initially, police still had to know who the dead woman was. A little boy, Alex as he was shortly identified as, had been forced to watch the entire attack, and despite forming an instant bond with the police officer who comforted him whilst awaiting the ambulance, he could tell police nothing. His age, of course, was a factor in this, but he also couldn't speak, so shocked and traumatised was he by what he'd witnessed. Theorising that due to the close proximity of the scene to the car park of the windmill that the murdered woman would likely have driven there, the charity golf tournament that was taking place nearby at the time was called off, and all players were summoned back to the clubhouse that shared the car park and asked to stand by their individual cars to eliminate each one. Finally, there was just a silver Volvo estate car remaining, unattended in the corner. The vehicle was registered to 23-year-old Rachel Jane Nickell, who lived five miles away from the common in a flat in Elmfield Mansions in the South London district of Ballum, with her partner, city motorcycle courier Andre Hanscom, and their two-year-old son, Alex. The name matched documents found on the body of the murdered woman, and with her identification cursorily established, a team of officers were right around to the flat. Now, in one of those strange, often macabre quirks of fate, it was only shortly after this that Rachel's partner Andre had stopped on a break from his morning deliveries at a call box and had decided to call home, as was usual for him each morning, to see how Rachel and Alex were. When the home phone was answered by an unfamiliar male voice, Andre at first hung up, thinking that he'd misdialed the number. He tried again, and when it was answered again by the same voice, he began to have the sinking feeling that something was very, very wrong. Less than a minute later, Andre's world came crashing down. The home phone had been answered by a police officer, who after trying to get him to remain where he was to be collected, had informed him that Rachel was dead. He was then faced with the heartbreaking task of collecting his traumatised son from the hospital he'd been taken to, and trying to explain to him that his mummy was dead, before then having to identify Rachel's body on a mortuary slab at St George's Hospital. Tracing Rachel's parents proved a trickier task, as they were away from their home in Ampthill in Bedfordshire, on holiday in Canada at the time, and with only a number in case of emergencies, it took a call to the Canadian police to trace them to a holiday home they were staying at in Bridge North in Ontario, which they managed to do so only some four days later. 
Rachel's elder brother Mark had flown out there to be with them, accompanied by two detectives from the murder squad, Detective Constables Paul Miller and Mark Murdoch, to tell his shattered family in person the known details of Rachel's murder. Andrew and Monica Nickel's first concern was for their beloved grandson Alex, and returning home on the first available flight found him in the care of his father, supported by a team of investigating officers and a leading child psychologist. Just five days after the murder, a shattered Andrew Nickel heartfelt appealed for public help in catching his daughter's killer, saying, Please don't let it happen again. Next time it could be someone else's daughter or mother or wife. Rachel was a shining light, a bright star in my life and everyone else's who knew her. The happiness with Andre was so real you could almost touch it. She can never be replaced in our lives and we can only hope to pick up the pieces. But our lives will always be less rich now she's gone. Meanwhile, veteran detective Superintendent John Bassett was the officer tasked with leading the investigation, backed by his deputy, Detective Chief Inspector Mike Wickerson, on a 40-strong team of detectives. And immediately, they knew they were looking for a maniac, someone who could do such a thing in broad daylight in front of a toddler. What else do you call them? There wasn't a single officer who hadn't taken the pitiful sight of little Alex into their hearts a memory that had steeled within them a drive to do whatever it took to catch whoever was responsible and make sure they could never commit such horror again. Interviewed years later, now retired Detective Chief Inspector Wickerson summed up the shock of the squad, saying, The little boy was totally silent, just sat staring into space. It was at that moment the full horror of what had happened dawned on me. It was simply the worst experience in my 26 years as a police officer and something that will be with me until my dying day. Now thankfully, and I know it's only some consolation, but Alex, although he was deeply traumatised, was otherwise physically unharmed apart from a few scratches and bruises. He was thoroughly physically examined for any signs of trauma and samples were taken from his hair and body his clothing was examined. If the killer had made contact with him when he struck him, then as every contact leaves a trace, there was always a chance that there may have been some recoverable forensic evidence from him. At the time, there wasn't anything that could lead police anywhere, just some microscopic flakes of red paint. Flakes of red paint, park that thought. A complete video recording of the crime scene was made before there was any contact with the body, while still photographs were taken of Rachel's body as it lay in situ, the immediate scene around it, the approach to it from the windmill car park direction, and leading away from it. It appeared that the killer had struck as he'd watched Rachel, Alex and Molly the dog on their walk that morning, from a hillock known as the Tumulus, overlooking the murder scene in Windmill Wood, a vantage point giving him ample view of the area and from where he could see no one else in the vicinity to disturb. He had accosted the pair, the exact point where he had struck marked by Alex's green t-shirt discarded in the mud where Rachel had dropped it in fear. Alex was then cast aside by a push or a blow to the face, sending him flying face down into the mud before the assailant had launched a ferocious murderous attack upon Rachel. 
He'd struck with such swiftness that the fit Rachel hadn't had chance to defend herself or her son, or even scream or cry out, alerting one or more of the many people on the common that morning. Home office pathologist Dr Richard Thornley Shepherd attended the scene at 12.18 that afternoon for preliminary examination, where he noted that there were several areas of heavy blood staining at the crime scene, indicating Rachel had been attacked initially and then moved by the killer to the spot where her body lay. Dr Shepherd made a sketch plan of the scene, showing the main area of blood staining underneath Rachel's body, with another large patch a few yards away, and separate rings of blood in between both areas. Taking this into account with a patterning of blood staining to Rachel's clothing, her jeans were saturated with blood at the upper front area, Dr Shepherd was able to establish four phases of the attack. Beginning with the killer confronting Rachel and Alex on the path, at knife point they had been moved into the copse, at the spot where the largest area of bloodstaining was found. It's likely that Rachel had been forced to her knees due to the relative absence of bloodstaining on her lower jeans, and had then been struck in the throat, damaging her neck muscles and cartilages of her larynx to the point where she would have been unable to cry out or scream for help. She would have fallen forward onto her face from this and lay for a time, her devastating neck wounds causing the first pool of blood on the ground. The presence of leaf mould on her back and the rear of her jeans showed that Rachel was then moved to a point where she was facing the base of the silver birch tree, where she was then stabbed repeatedly and frenziedly. The killer then attempted to remove her jeans and underwear, before turning and pulling her body to the position it was found, and continuing to rain further frantic blows upon her. Although she'd not been raped, her body had been sexually violated with a solid smooth object before the killer fled. There was one aspect of the scene that puzzled investigators for some considerable time. A piece of paper, later found to be a bank receipt from Rachel's pocket, had been folded once and placed upon her right temple. It had adhered to her skin and consideration was given for some time as to what it meant. It was a deliberate act, but why had the killer done this? It was ascertained much later that it was actually nothing to do with the killing, but in the moments before Michael Murray had discovered the ghastly scene, little Alex had placed it there as a makeshift plaster, trying to make his mummy better. How heartbreaking is that, eh? Poor little bugger. Can't imagine it, can you? Once the scene had been recorded and documented, Rachel was then taken to the mortuary at St George's Hospital for post-mortem. At this, a total of 49 stab wounds to Rachel's body were found, with each being noted, catalogued in numerical order, and the angles of them measured. It was concluded that the wounds had been inflicted by a knife with a single cutting edge, 9cm in length and measuring a centimetre and a half at the hilt, which had a squared lower hilt that was thought to be brass. 19 of these wounds were to her back, 26 to the chest and abdomen, and 3 savage wounds to the neck that had caused catastrophic injuries, almost severing her head. At least 13 of the wounds had been inflicted after death as well it transpired. Many of these blows had pierced her vital organs, including five deep penetrative wounds to the lungs and three to the heart, and such was the ferocity of the attack that the imprint of the hilt of the knife had been left on Rachel's skin, 
whilst the complete speed and obliteration of it was demonstrated by the single defensive wound found to her left hand. Dr Shepard concluded that from the angle of the blows, the killer had been stood behind Rachel when he inflicted the wounds to her throat, meaning he could have had relatively little blood staining on him. He also concluded that the attack, from start to finish, would have taken at least three minutes in total. And a toddler's son had been forced to witness this. Pure evil. It boggles the mind that, doesn't it? But a fingertip search of the crime scene and an extended search of the large expanse of the common had failed to produce any sign of a discarded murder weapon or any discarded blood-stained clothing, and nor had forensic experts who examined either the scene or Rachel's body been able to find any biological evidence left at the scene by the killer. There were various footprints around the scene beside Rachel's and Alex's, but it was a popular daily path with walkers and chances of identifying the killer's particular prints were slim indeed. Nevertheless, casts were made of the treads of all prints in a hope that it would be a positive match to the killer's shoes, when the killer was caught, of course. Establishing a timeline of Rachel's final movements, the last person to see Rachel alive that morning was identified as theatre actor Roger McKern, who was cycling across Wimbledon Common at 10.20 that morning to attend rehearsals of A Midsummer Night's Dream at Wimbledon Theatre. Roger had stopped to check the time as he was running late and had seen a blonde woman and a little boy close by walking a small black dog on a grassed open area between the Windmill Car Park and Windmill Wood. They'd smiled at each other in greeting and thinking no more of this, Roger had set off to tread the boards. It was only when the news was filled with details of the horrific murder later that evening did he consider what he'd seen and telephoned police to ask if the little boy was of mixed race. Rachel must have died mere moments later. With Roger's information, police now had an important sighting of Rachel and Alex and were able to narrow down a 15-minute window in which she'd met her killer. But no one, bar Alex of course, had actually seen the killer strike or seen a blood-stained person running away from the scene. Police did, however, rapidly learn of a couple of sightings of people that the investigation focused upon, at least at first, and within two hours of Rachel's body being discovered, they had a description of what they believed likely was the same man that rapidly became a person of interest in the inquiry. Jane Harriman, out dog-walking on the common that morning with her four children, at about ten past ten saw a man walking towards them near to the curling pond at the north of the common, quite near to Putney Vale Cemetery, that she instantly felt apprehensive about. He was described as a white clean-shaven male in his late twenties to early thirties, about five feet ten inches tall with dark brown close-cropped hair, wearing a white top and dark trousers. As the man approached, Jane could see that he was carrying a dark-coloured bag that seemed like a sports bag, and as he passed by the family, he turned his head sharply to avoid showing his features. The family continued onwards towards the curling pond, where Jane sat on a log nearby watching her children playing and the dog playing with another dog in the pond itself. The second dog owner, Pauline Fleming, left only a couple of minutes later, Whilst Jane sat there, about seven minutes after she'd passed him on the path, the stranger appeared again. 
He walked around the other side of the pond and headed in the direction that Pauline had taken only a couple of minutes before. Jane was later to describe the man as having an odd look on his face and walking with a slight but definite forward stoop, briskly, as if he was in a hurry, but nervous, Jane said. Stooping, remember that too. By now nervous about the stranger, Jane called her children to her, and after another couple of minutes, at about 10.23am, noticed the man again, this time emerging from the wooded area to the family's left. She now noticed that he had what appeared to be a thin strap or a belt on over the top of his shirt, not holding his trousers up in any way, but above the waistband of his trousers, and watched as he headed back along the route he'd taken earlier, towards the hill next to Windmill Wood. When he was out of sight, with concern for the woman and her dog, Jane and her family decided to take a cursory look into the woods to see if anything was amiss, but finding nothing, they continued their walk. Now if this had been the killer, then he must have encountered Rachel and Alex mere minutes after this sighting. It was already known from the sighting of Rachel by Roger McKern that at the very same time, she and Alex were heading towards where he was last seen walking to and would have been on a collision course with him. Jane Harriman was recognised as a very important witness from the off. She was stopped by a police officer when she and her family were leaving the common that morning and 30 minutes later was given a statement as to what she'd seen. She was later to retrace her exact route with a member of the investigating team which was recorded on video and also worked with the police composite artist at Scotland Yard's facial identification unit to create an artist's impression and full-length picture of the man who'd spooked her so that she was satisfied was a decent likeness when it was finished. If you head over to the show's Instagram page following the episode, or right now, thanks to the power of being able to do such things simultaneously, eh? you can see for yourself this both close-up and full-length view of the suspect. So was this same man, the one seen by another witness about seven or eight minutes later, washing his hands in a stream in a nearby drainage ditch? Like Jane Harriman, Amanda Filan was out walking her dogs that morning on the common, and between 10.30 and 10.40 was passing a drainage ditch about 100 yards or so from the murder scene, when she saw a man bending down as though he was washing his hands in the stream, at one point even getting into it. Amanda claimed, I thought it was odd, but I couldn't get a good look at his face because he kept his head down. What she could see was that the man was dark brown haired and was wearing a white or cream coloured top and blue jeans. After a few seconds, he stood up, got out of the ditch and headed off in the direction of Putney Cemetery, where she judged him to be about six feet in height, perhaps taller, and in his late twenties to early thirties. When Amanda herself took the same route shortly afterwards, her dogs began barking furiously at the thick bushes by the cemetery wall and this spooked her because she considered that somebody may have been hiding in there. The dogs would not behave like that otherwise, she claimed. Now police tracker dogs did detect a scent leading from this drainage ditch to the cemetery wall and two witnesses came forward who had both been in the cemetery that morning and had heard what sounded like someone crashing through undergrowth on the other side of the fence. It was also much later reported that a vicar preparing for a funeral that morning observed a man jumping over the cemetery wall, right at the spot where the scent ended. 
theorising that it wasn't difficult for a fit and active person to scale the wrought iron railings of the sizeable cemetery and be away into obscurity. A team of police officers fingertip searched every inch of the 200 yards between the murder scene and here, even scanning the area with metal detectors in case a murder weapon had been disposed of or hidden here, and whilst a number of old knives were found, none of them matched the imprint of the hilt that had been left on Rachel's body. The horrific story was on every news bulletin and the front pages of every newspaper going on the following day, and for days, even weeks afterwards, the story dominated the papers and TV news. It even led to an episode of the TV sitcom Bottom being shelved from its planned screening only days after the murder, because the episode in question had a plot of Richie and Eddie, the characters from it, if you've never seen Bottom, camping on Wimbledon Common. It's a fantastic episode of a great show, that one is too. But I can't really stress to you just how much the crime shocked the country at the time it happened. And as a result, police faced intense scrutiny and pressure to catch the killer from the off. They believed the killer was a local man who knew the area of Wimbledon Common well. And when a check on known sex offenders was run, the first priority of suspects to be eliminated from the inquiry always. The depressing statistic was found that more than a hundred convicted sex offenders lived within a mile or two of the scene. Every single one of these would have to be traced and eliminated, and every piece of information available was fed into homes, with the squad being increased to 54 strong presents. Now where I said before that police believed they were looking for a maniac, that was and remained of course the initial thought, I mean, who in their right mind attacks a mother and toddler in such a frenzy, but the sheer ferocity of the attack made them consider, was it a personal attack? Was it someone who knew and bore a grudge against Rachel for some reason? But a look into her life found absolutely nothing to suggest this was the case. She wasn't involved in anything unlawful or illicit, and not a single person could be found with a derogatory word to say about her, let alone to wish her dead. Rachel had been born on the 23rd of November 1968, the youngest child and only daughter of Andrew and Monica Nickel, and had spent her childhood in the village of Great Totham, near Colchester in Essex. A bright child, known by the nickname Me Too, as as a child she would adoringly copy everything that her elder brother Mark did, Rachel had happily attended Great Totham Primary School, before winning a place at the selective Colchester High School for Girls, where she excelled academically, eventually leaving with nine O-levels in a mixture of A and B grades. Indeed, this seemed to be a girl who was blessed in every way. Rachel was intelligent, she was filled with sporting prowess, and was involved in everything, be it organising and starring in school drama productions, to helping in the community with the aged and the disabled. Such was her kind-hearted nature. A naturally talented dancer from a young age, she was star pupil to her former tutor at the Essex Dance Theatre in Chelmsford, Debbie Holm, who claimed that she could have easily walked into a career on the West End stage, being blessed with both the ability and the looks. Now the photographs of Rachel that were released following her murder have over the years become familiar. I didn't want to say iconic there, but they are unmistakable, synonymous with the crime. All show a vibrant looking woman enjoying herself in all manner of pastimes. A strikingly pretty girl, and she really was, for looks was certainly another thing that Rachel was blessed with. 
Before she'd even left school, Rachel had been touted with offers of modelling work, but had turned them down to concentrate on her studies. She was to have modelling assignments later on in life, however, and as an adult had received an offer of a contract with a leading modelling agency, but fell pregnant with Alex beforehand and placed motherhood firmly before any of her own aspirations. She did nurture hopes that when Alex was a little older, she may be able to break into the television presenting scene, and it's probably not really a jump to say that had she had the chance, she would probably have been a natural at it. Truly, this was a girl with the world at her feet. Another pastime Rachel had and was serious about was swimming. It was something she did regularly and excelled in, becoming a particularly stylish diver and led to her following in her mother's footsteps and becoming a swimming instructor and lifeguard herself. It was while she was doing this that she met Andre Hanscom. Andre was a semi-professional tennis player who'd met Rachel in July 1988 while she was doing a holiday job as a lifeguard at a pool in Richmond in Surrey during the break from an English literature degree at university. Although Rachel was in the process of ending her relationship with her then-boyfriend Rudolph, when Andre had asked her to meet that evening, she'd accepted, finding herself attracted to the handsome tennis player of English and Zimbabwean heritage. She and Andre rapidly became a couple, and shortly afterwards she moved from her then-home in Plumstead into Andre's first-floor flat in Balham. Although Rachel was taking the contraceptive pill, she found herself pregnant in November 1988, and after the initial knee-jerk reaction of considering a termination based on their relatively short relationship, both she and Andre had a sea change and the baby, who was already pre-named Alexander Lewis, the names Rachel had set her heart on for a child since she was a young girl, was soon longed for. The news that Rachel was pregnant, unmarried and abandoning her studies led to a frosty reception for a time between her parents and she and Andre, but eventually Andrew and Monica were to come around to the idea and supported Rachel through her pregnancy. And from the moment she discovered that she was expecting, Rachel threw herself into the role of expectant mother. She got all the books, she did all the classes, that kind of thing. He was two weeks late coming, but finally, just after 7am on the 11th of August 1989, into the world came Alex Lewis Hanscom, who was from the start adored by both his parents. As I said before, searches of Rachel online, as well as adorning the several books that are available concerning the crime, show countless pictures of the smiling woman, taking in happy times on holidays or days out, there are home videos of Rachel playing in the park with her beloved dog Molly, with Andre as well, but the most poignant, lasting images are of those with her and Alex. Like I described in the previous episode with Samantha and Jasmine, you can just see how this boy is her whole world. But life with a new baby was of course difficult, and Rachel and Andre found it somewhat difficult to make ends meet. Although he had a job as a motorcycle courier, it was only a temporary measure while he pursued his dream of becoming a tennis professional, having already proved himself good enough to have coached at an instructor level. Alex still occupied her time fully, so the aspirations of television work were some way off, and both considered selling off the flat and making a new life abroad in the countryside somewhere for themselves and Alex, setting their hearts on a move to France. After some tentative inquiries, whilst they had some interest at the £80,000 mark, 
It was short of the £85,000 asking price that they ideally wanted that they believed would be the amount needed to fund their future. Perhaps this worry about finances and future, or perhaps even if it was postnatal depression, had an effect upon Rachel's mental health. She could at times, as described by Andre much later, be in a black hole, pessimistic and despairing. She'd often get Andre to ensure that he would take care of Alex should something happen to her, claiming that while she could picture him as an old man, she could see no future for herself. Also at times, Rachel had the most horrific and vivid of nightmares, always involving something awful and bloody happening to her. Andre, when he was discussing these later, was to describe one time where Rachel sat bolt upright in bed, turned to him, and with an expression of betrayal and heartache on her face, asked him, Why did you kill me? Eyes open, but still sound asleep. Reportedly, though, these startling episodes were few and far between, and for the majority of the time, Rachel was the happy, friendly, kind-hearted girl that everyone who met grew to like or love. She made time to do the important things with Alex, like reading to him and encouraging him to develop his letters and sounds, playing with him, worrying about his balanced diet, that kind of stuff. She also believed in a firm relationship for Alex with both her parents and Andre's mother, and at least once a week would make the 50-mile trip out of London to her parents' home in Ampthill in Bedfordshire, where Monica and Andrew could dote on the little boy that they'd adored from the off. Both of them did a lot with Alex, and indeed, only a month after Rachel's death, marked his third birthday in a low-key affair, presenting him with his first bicycle, wanting to preserve as much normality for their grandson as they possibly could. The other pastime that Rachel and Alex would do together was getting out and about in nature, taking their beloved Molly out, a little pack as Rachel would often describe them. It was to transpire later that Rachel had only begun using Wimbledon Common for these walks just six months before she died, after she'd tired of in the past being propositioned by sex pests and weirdos in other parks nearer to Balham that she'd used before. She'd been either propositioned or even flashed at on Tootinbeck, Clapham and Wandsworth Commons, and at the advice of her parents and Andre, she'd tried Wimbledon Common and loved it instantly, with the open expanses, the wooded areas and ponds interspersed, with several features and points of interest. Now, I've never been to Wimbledon Common myself, but I did research it while I was writing the episode, and from images, it does indeed look a stunning place to go. Proper lovely. It was this that kept Rachel making the five-mile journey with Alex and Molly a few times each week, and with the weather that day, Wednesday the 15th of July 1992, being great, there was no reason for her to even stop and consider that that day would be anything but idyllic. Less than an hour after she left the flat, Rachel would be dead. Four days after the murder, with the story having dominated the press headlines that week as I said, the now defunct News of the World newspaper had offered a £15,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of Rachel's killer, and an appeal from Detective Superintendent Bassett, saying, The man who did this has got to be mentally and emotionally distressed. He may be sitting at home now, reading newspaper accounts or watching television. 
If he has one shred of common decency in him, he will give himself up. The ferocity of the attack was such that the man has to be abnormal. It must be preying on his conscience, and I appeal to the man who committed this heinous crime to give himself up. Then, one week after the murder, on the 22nd of July, a friend of Rachel's who looked strikingly like her offered to help police create a televised reconstruction of Rachel's final walk across the common, an experience that her friend found extremely and understandably overwhelming and upsetting, needing some moments alone in quiet reflection once the filming had ceased. Rachel's funeral was held on the 3rd of August at St Andrew's Church in Ampthill, a packed service conducted by Reverend David Louthwaite, bedecked with flowers and more than 160 mourners. Service sheets given to the congregation depicted a sketch of pink flowers and a handwritten message Rachel had sent to a friend in a Christmas card some time earlier, in bright fuchsia pink, simply saying, Lots and lots of love, Rachel. Alex sat throughout the service silently on his father's lap, clutching a heart-shaped helium balloon, whilst at either side of both were Detective Constables Paul Miller and Nick Sparshat, who were by that time constant companions of the family, but had also become firm family friends. Amongst the many tributes, Andre had selected and attempted to read aloud an ancient Native American poem, but was overcome with emotion, it proving too much for him to do so. So instead, Rachel's dignified father, stealing himself with some of his former military bearing, read them. The moving verse went as follows. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there, I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning hush, I am the uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. Following the service, Rachel was laid to rest at Bedford Crematorium, where a few days later her ashes were interred on a clifftop churchyard location on the south coast of the UK, beside her grandmother's grave. Just the previous day, a thousand-strong procession had set off in silent march from Wimbledon Village to the common itself, paying tribute to the girl who almost all of them had never known, but whose tragic and senseless death had broken the nation's hearts. For a long time afterwards, an oak tree nearby to the murder scene became a beacon for the countless floral tributes that flowed in from people, absolutely outraged by the horrific murder, and containing such messages as Hope they find the animal that did this to you and your son. God bless you and your child. Or, may it not be too long before the beastly character is caught and brought to justice, so that everyone may enjoy the peace and tranquility again. Now today, no such tributes are left there anymore, but Rachel is still remembered there. There's a memorial bench to her on the common, complete with a plaque affixed in her memory. These tributes extended to the Nickel family as well as Andre and especially Alex. Messages and gifts from well-wishers all over the country flowed in for him and at the time he was probably the most famous child in Britain. In the care of his father, his grandparents and uncles, 
Alex was kept as much as possible out of the media eye, however, and under the care of a leading child psychologist. With the family at all times were detectives Paul Miller and Nick Sparshat, keeping close to Alex and developing a bond with him in case he suddenly uttered a word or part of a description, anything that may help them find the killer. Firstly, by using a series of drawings, fat stick man, thin stick man, and then further by using play sessions with a number of dolls with differing hair colour and skin tones, Andre and the psychologist were over time able to extract from Alex a tentative description of the bad man as he was forever to refer to him, that when put onto paper is an incredibly similar description both in feature and clothing to that given by both Jane Harriman of the man she had seen three separate times only minutes before the murder and Amanda Filan who'd spotted a man of similar description washing his hands in the stream not far from the murder scene five minutes after Rachel and Alex had been found. Alex's strengthened the importance of their sighting short, but this is a three-year-old child we're talking about at the end of the day. It wasn't like police could have pushed him further with his limited ability of self-expression, not to risk traumatising the poor boy further. One risk that Andre did take, after giving it some weight, was at the recommendation of the child psychologist, taking Alex back to Wimbledon Common a few days after the murder. Now there were two reasons for doing this. Firstly, because Andre himself wanted to lay a tribute to Rachel at the scene in the form of a single red rose, and Alex had asked to go with him. And secondly, because he didn't want his son fearing places by association, trying to show him that it wasn't the place that was bad, it was the bad man. Police accompanied both at a respectful distance, and whilst the inevitable newspaper reporters were also at the scene en masse, both Andre and Rachel's family had made an impassioned plea to the media that Alex's face should not be plastered across the front pages the following day. There was always the chance that because the killer was free, he may believe that the toddler could identify him, and as such, he was at risk. Now whilst most newspapers did respect this and blanked out the boy's features, one daily tabloid, The Sun, completely ignored this and the following day published a picture of Andre and Alex leaving the rose at the scene. This led to scores of complaints and the Press Complaints Commission being deluged with protests at such a move. And it's totally unsurprising really because it's found itself involved in controversy countless times over its 50 year history most notably over its coverage of the 1989 Hillsborough Stadium disaster. Whole different story that one is though, anyway. It was not the last that The Sun would feature in the investigation either. So, whilst the murder squad worked flat out on the nuts and bolts, bog-standard aspects of all investigations, with the eyes of the public on him and his team, Detective Superintendent John Bassett decided to seek an offender profile of the killer. On the 28th of July 1992, he contacted psychologist Paul Britton, the psychologist who we've met before here on the show in both parts of this series story arc so far. After a consultation with Detective Superintendent Bassett and Detective Chief Inspector Wickerson, Britton was taken to the crime scene, walking the full length of the route from the car park near the Commons windmill, past the murder scene and beyond to the curling pond and the edge of Putney Cemetery where he recorded findings and observations, 
how it looked, what kind of screening did the murder scene have from the main path, how busy was it at any given time, that sort of thing. Given complete copies of the case files, Britton went on to produce a multi-pointed psychological profile of the killer, complete with an eight-point profile of what he believed were the killer's fantasies, which are detailed as follows. The killer was a stranger to Rachel. He would be male, aged between about 20 to 30 years old. He would have poor heterosocial skills. He would have a powerful yet deviant sexual fantasy life. If any, he would have a history of unsatisfactory or failed relationships. He'd be likely to suffer some form of sexual dysfunction in addition to his deviant fantasies. He was likely to be attracted to or use some form of pornography. There was a 50% chance that he would have some previous history of offending, though this did not necessarily equate to convictions. He would have rehearsed the killer in general in sexual fantasy, but precise details and victims would have been chosen on basis of opportunity and driven by the strength of the offender's impulse on the particular day and time. He'd not be of any more than average intelligence and education, and if he was employed, would be in an unskilled occupation, most probably manual. He'd live a relatively isolated lifestyle and would be single, most likely living alone in a flat or a bedsit, but possibly still with his parents or a parental figure. He'd have solitary hobbies and or interests, which would be of an unusual nature and may include a low-level interest in martial arts. He'd be thoroughly familiar with Wimbledon Common and would live within easily accessible walking distance of it. It was not considered that this was a car user. The killer would have been excited, upset or animated noticeably in the few days immediately following Rachel's murder, but this would have subsided to its normal level thereafter. And the final point, it was almost inevitable that at some point in the future, the offender would kill again, targeting another young woman as a result of the strong deviant sexual and aggressive fantasies and urges that had already been listed in the profile. The deviant sexual fantasies of the killer, Britton wrote, stemmed from him having a personality disturbance, the characteristics of which would represent a subgroup of those suffering from general sexual deviation. He also expected the killer's sexual fantasy life to contain at least some of these elements. Adult women, the woman would be used as a sexual object purely for his gratification. There would be little to no evidence of any intimate relationship building. There would be sadistic content, possibly with the use of a knife or knives, an exertion of physical control and verbal abuse. It would involve the submission of the female participant. It would involve vaginal and anal assault. It would involve the female participant exhibiting fear and the elements of sexual frenzy would end in him killing the female participant. It's not really what you'd find in your everyday copy of Razzle, is it? But Paul Britton wasn't the only psychologist that had a hand in the Rachel Nickell case. By a twist of fate, the late Robert Ressler, the guy often credited with coining the term serial killer and who was instrumental in setting up Vicap, was two weeks after the murder heading over to the UK to promote his book, Whoever Fights Monsters, which is a very worthwhile read if you already haven't. Now, riding the wave of the popularity of the film The Silence of the Lambs, the Sun newspaper had purchased rights to publish extracts from the book 
and pretty much as soon as Wrestler had landed in the UK, he was scooped up by some journalists who, without revealing their true intentions, took him to Wimbledon Common and photographed him there whilst interviewing him about offender profiling in general. It was again an unscrupulous tactic of the Sun, for the following day the headline read, Rachel, Sun flies in, silence of lambs man. Now by all accounts, Wrestler did complain about tactics like this. Told you, I think it's a shit rag the Sun is. But as he'd been in effect dragged into the case, he made contact with people he knew at Scotland Yard, who in turn put him into contact with Detective Superintendent Bassett. Provided with various materials from the case file, Wrestler was to go on and write his own seven-page profile of Rachel's killer, which when broken down was remarkably similar to Paul Britton's. It pointed to a killer who was noticeably mentally disturbed and had a tormented childhood, he resonated with Alex, which is why he didn't kill him, was sexually inadequate but fuelled by the most twisted of fantasies. I didn't think he was a serial killer, yet, but he had got the taste of blood and could kill again, wrestler can be quoted as saying. Thanks Bob, you chilling fucker. So armed with their offender profiles and with an insight into the psychological makeup of the man responsible, police continued the search for Rachel's killer. Now you might think somewhat throughout the episode, which has been on for a fair bit now, that I've skirted over the investigation and the search for Rachel's killer a fair bit, apart from recounting the sightings by Jane Harriman and Amanda Phelan that I mentioned earlier. Now I've not meant to do this of course, because make no mistake, throughout the early stages of the inquiry there were of course the usual actions performed in any murder investigation and suspects were named and arrested, some 32 people in total who had come onto police radar. These included, in part, a 27-year-old schizophrenic named Ben Silcock, who on New Year's Eve 1992 had decided it would be a fitting end to the year if he jumped into the lion enclosure at London Zoo, only getting severely mauled for his efforts. Another person named, and swiftly eliminated I must add as well, was a person we've already met before on The Enthusiast, one of the star players in an episode from the previous series, the Grave at Greve de Lec episodes, army captain and parasitical murderer Roderick Newell. Both of them, as I say, were though to be eliminated from the inquiry. And as I said before also, if I seem to have skirted over the inquiry somewhat, I haven't because there's a lot more to come from the tale of the Wimbledon common murder, a lot more. It seems like the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry more than a decade before it to have gone off on a tragic tangent somewhere early on. Yes, officers on the Nickel inquiry certainly liaised with other high-profile investigations running at the time, one being a certain Operation Eccleston, but nothing was taken any further forward and no links with any were made or even seemingly seriously investigated. In the very public eye, for the press went mad over this crime, I, I, I can't stress enough how much they did. Police were under intense pressure to catch Rachel's killer. There was the usual standard actions of any investigation, the bringing in of Paul Britton to consult and produce this profile of the killer, and even when Crime Watch UK returned in September 1992 after its summer break, it was the lead item on that edition of the show, a link to which is of course available in this week's episode show notes. 
Detective Superintendent Bassett himself appeared in the studio to lead the appeal, and the feature contained extracts from the video taken by police of the crime scene area, so you can actually picture the area as it was on that July morning. It recounts Rachel's last known movements, the sightings by Jane and Amanda, as well as showing the artist's impression that Jane helped create the one I've already shared on the show's Instagram page. And then, talking about the offender profile, Nick Ross proceeded to bullet point it in layman's terms. He was local, he was a loner, was unskilled, had few friends, and stressed how clearly dangerous this man was. The phones in the Crime Watch studio rang off the hook, and the appeal generated more than 300 calls to the studio in the incident room by the time of the update program just an hour later. Crucially, the names of two people were given more than once by callers as a possible suspect and Superintendent Bassett was able to report on the update that one person had gone right to the top of the interest list. Now this excited police, for one of the persons named had come to their attention very early on in the inquiry anyway. He'd been spoken to by a uniformed police officer on the approach to Wimbledon Common shortly after the murder having admitted that he'd been there on the common once already that morning, and was soon to become the police's prime suspect in Rachel's murder. He was a social misfit and a person of interest, but was he a killer though? So convinced were police that he was, that to find out it led to a controversial, unique, undercover operation being launched. That next episode I shall be telling you all about as I find this is a perfect fit in place to draw this episode of the Maniac Arc to a close. It is a bit of a tale this one, and I knew as soon as I'd started it that it will end up dwarfing the South Wales Slayer Arc from last series, and I thought that I couldn't get any more full on than that. There are also about 7 or 8 books that I can't wait to put back on my shelf and resign them to not looking again for a long long time, but we'll get there, more of the tale to come yet, and it's coming in just a few days time. I'll also, once the whole lot is done, be editing it together into a super long episode like an audiobook that I've decided I'll release for Patreon supporters of the show. So it's onwards and upwards with that. I thank you guys very much for joining me here today and all that remains is for me to say that I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys safe times, stay safe by staying home all and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care, folks, and goodbye for now.